We have a responsibility to get a climate story right. This November, leaders from around the world are gathering in Glasgow, Scotland for the COP26 International Climate Talks. We are facing a global climate emergency. The world's biggest polluters have less than 30 years to change their ways. Hello, I'm Richard Gisbert, and you're at The Listening Post, where we dig into the coverage and look at how news is reported. Here are the media stories we're examining this week. Climate change, news organizations, fossil fuel companies, and audiences all need to do better on the story that could mean the end of us. Ethiopia enters a state of emergency, and the government's controlling of journalism there has turned aggressive. Violence against Muslims, filmed by the perpetrators, the latest ugly trend among India's Hindu vigilantes. Plus, just listen to the chants roaring in downtown Cairo. Al Jazeera turns 25. We look back at a quarter century of a different kind of news coverage. We begin with the biggest story on the planet, which is about the planet and climate change, a topic that somehow still doesn't get the news coverage it deserves. There are plenty of news cameras at the COP26 climate conference taking place right now in Scotland. Our focus is on the coverage at other times, when world leaders aren't gathering. Among the issues, the privileging of perspectives and interests of wealthy nations and big business over those of poorer countries on the front lines of climate breakdown. News organizations, many of which remain dependent on the money that big oil advertising provides, and some of which, like Rupert Murdoch's platforms in the U.S. and Australia, are resistant to the story. Fossil fuel companies, masters of the art of quiet persuasion, now using platforms like Instagram and TikTok to sell their green-washed messages to younger audiences, and the audiences themselves. How is it that the prospect of our imminent destruction is not the ultimate in news clickbait. Our starting point this week is Glasgow. World leaders gathering in Scotland. The time to tackle this slipping away. The last chance to control global warming. For journalists in search of an assignment that matters, the COP26 climate conference in Scotland provides one. They're covering the story of our collapsing ability to sustain life. And it's being called the last hope to stop catastrophic climate change. For such a slow-moving story, it's taken the journalism a long time to catch up, to find the right storytelling formula. Too often, the reporting still struggles to see beyond the science, to get at the bigger picture, how the topic they are covering connects to every aspect of our lives. It's not a science story at all. It's a story about politics. It's a story about how power is distributed, how governments decide what their interests are. And if you tell this story as a story of people, you will have readers and viewers because everyone wants to know what powerful people are doing and how it affects them. And you can tell that story every single day when you're talking about the climate crisis. If you're just trying to treat it like another news item, uh, oh, and by the way, um, the, 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 the planet's rapidly sliding into the dustbin, then we're not going to reach people in the way that we need. And this is fundamentally an issue of injustice. It's so important that voices from the Global South are present and leading and given space because we are the ones who are experiencing the climate crisis. We need far more really hammering home the message that 
it's the, the rich nations who are overwhelmingly causing this problem, but it's people who bear almost no responsibility for it. The poorest people on earth who are being hit first and worst by it. As compelling as that narrative should be, the climate change story is up against it. Part of that has to do with resources and the principles involved. Fossil fuel companies have more money to shape news coverage than media outlets have to provide it, or than activists have to contest it. And their corporate propaganda has changed with the times. I love Toronto and I want to keep our city and the world we live in clean and beautiful. Hard denials of the science have been replaced by softer, subtler forms of disinformation through messages spread by influencers on platforms like Instagram and TikTok. The oil and gas companies are obviously no longer denying that the climate crisis is real. To do that at this point would be utterly absurd. So now what they've done, they've rebranded themselves. To become an integrated energy company, scaling up renewables is a major focus. They're painting themselves as trustworthy partners in the clean energy transition. Over the last decade, Chevron has spent over $1 billion on carbon capture projects. Who are committed to net zero and who are leading the research into new technologies that will help us solve the climate crisis. To provide the energy solutions, that advance modern life. Now, neither of these claims are true. They pay Instagram influencers, they pay for content on TikTok and many other platforms, and often in ways which are really subtle and insidious. Yes, it's a reality that we need to drive to experience many of these locations, but thanks to Shell, there's a way to both explore nature and to reduce our carbon footprint at the same time. It's all about aspiration. It's all about, you know, you can lead a good life and we can help you to lead that good life. And hey, look at this fantastic car you can have. The oil industry has a huge amount of money and it's also kind of builds in the romance of travel. We're also coming out of a pandemic, so a lot of us miss travel. We want to travel more, and the oil industry has been very good at kind of using marketing and using influencers to tap into our desire to get on the road, essentially. And, and they're constantly trying to persuade us that they're on our side, that they're helping us to, to lead a better life, whereas in actual fact, they are pushing us towards oblivion. The fossil fuel lobby relies on news organizations, some of which remain supportive of the industry, many of which have simply grown dependent on it. Because no matter what the natural disaster is, hurricanes, tornadoes, acne, whatever, climate change did it. In other words, you did it. The supporters, like the outlets Rupert Murdoch owns in the US and Australia, fight the consensus on what changes societies must make, how quickly it must make them. The dependents include legacy outlets like the Washington Post and the New York Times, newspapers that produce quality journalism on climate change while pocketing significant ad revenues from oil companies. This network, Al Jazeera, benefits from Qatar's gas and oil reserves. And even relative newcomers to American journalism, Politico, Axios, and Punchbowl News all have their political newsletters sponsored by Big Oil. 
in the United States last week, and they called the CEOs and the heads of the fossil fuel trade groups to testify before Congress. And the chairwoman asked, Do you believe that it was ethical for Exxon to run a New York Times advertisement that downplayed, downplayed the risk? Is it ethical? to spread these lies when they all know full well that climate change is real and that the science is not uncertain. There was one study that showed that um, uh, there were five times as many fossil fuel ads on CNN as there was climate coverage. Eighty-five vehicles strong gas. If you look at the Murdoch empire or the Fox News folks, they're focusing on President Biden after a transatlantic flight seemed to close his eyes for a few minutes during one of the speeches. While claiming the situation on planet Earth is so dire, President Biden reacting by appearing to take a nap during a climate speech. And then President Trump's words uh, shows that uh, Biden isn't really that is serious about climate and he really knows it's a hoax. I mean, what can you say about that? What it means to be a journalist and put out that kind of crap. For a story as existentially critical as climate change, audience interest has been oddly lacking and for too long. That is changing. Surveys in country after country indicate news consumers say they want more on climate change, and reader engagement is trending up. Platforms like Bloomberg, The Financial Times, and Gizmodo are all responding with new specialized content. But check out the top 10 most popular story list on the BBC, The Washington Post, or The Guardian. On any given day this week, other topics like politics, crime, even celebrities proved more popular with readers than a climate story that could change everything. We've been very well trained over the years to respond to trivia. So much political journalism is basically just who's in, who's out. It's like a soap opera, so we expect the news to be a soap opera. Tune into any station on a day of climate disaster and listen to what people are talking about. And it is the most ineffable trivia. The whole world is going to hell in a handcart. You know, and say, wait a minute, surely that should be the central thing. Trust in news is fairly low. I do think the solution lies possibly in rethinking what news is for, who it's by, and climate journalism holds part of the key to this there's a way to tap into a generation and to a group of society that feel very much that the news is for the elites, it's nothing to do with them, and if anything, it's hostile to their values, and to say, no, this is a story which affects everybody. The audience for climate stories is definitely increasing because so many more people are being affected by climate catastrophes. We have to reach people who are not necessarily affected directly by hurricanes, floods, and wildfires, but to explain how all of us are going to be affected if parts of the world are no longer livable. People need to understand that they're being manipulated by large corporations who have a self-interest, which is contrary to the self-interest of all of us as members of the human race. Exactly a year after war broke out in the northern Tigray region of Ethiopia, Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has declared a six-month state of emergency. Flo Phillips is on this. Flo, why the state of emergency and why now? The Ethiopian cabinet made the declaration after the Tigray People's Liberation Front, the TPLF, gained some strategic ground and threatened to close in on the capital Addis Ababa. 
The government's messaging has relied on the state-affiliated outlets like Fana TV, where one security official urged Ethiopians to arm themselves. The Prime Minister's office also tweeted a call for all capable Ethiopians who are of age to join the defence forces, special forces and militias. And Abiy Ahmed himself used Facebook to urge all citizens to, quote, bury the terrorist TPLF. Now that post has since been removed by the platform for inciting violence. From the outset of the fighting, the Abiy government has had issues with the news coverage. So what kind of reporting conditions are journalists working under now? Various blackouts and bans continue to make it very difficult to get the stories out. But the Committee to Protect Journalists has documented the arrests of several reporters accused of having links with the TPLF. Now, those charges tend to be vague. Two journalists at the privately owned Ahadu Radio and Television have been under arrest since last month after airing an interview with a TPLF official who was contesting the government's narrative around territory. And what are the authorities doing about the international coverage of this story? Recently, the main broadcast regulator ordered Ethiopian channels to stop transmitting content from foreign media outlets. So Ahadu Radio and TV, which is affiliated with Voice of America, can no longer air any of VOA's international coverage. End of. VOA put out a statement saying that the order restricts the free flow of information to the citizens and it undermines press freedom and it sends a chilling message to all journalists in the country and not just journalists, Richard. This is a chilling message to all in Ethiopia. Okay, thanks, Flo. Our next report comes with a viewer warning. Some of the images are disturbing, which is why we're doing the piece. India, whose population includes around 200 million Muslims, is seeing more and more videos posted online of violence against Muslims. In more than a dozen incidents this year alone, mobs of men calling themselves protectors of the Hindu faith have targeted street vendors, rickshaw drivers, even children. Those videos of the violence they meet out and film often get millions of views. Ever since Prime Minister Narendra Modi and the BJP came to power back in 2014, attacks against Muslim Indians and other minority groups have been on the rise. And if you think that committing a violent crime on camera must mean jail time for the perpetrator, think again. The Listening Post's Meenakshi Ravi now on the wave of anti-Muslim viral violence in India and the journalists out to expose it. I've spent the last few years trying to understand why we are seeing so many videos of violence against Muslims going viral in India. The videos are filmed by ordinary Indians and they, can, they are watched and shared primarily by ordinary Indians. They are like the lynching postcards that used to be produced and distributed in America. Pictures of black people being beaten, humiliated and even killed. The idea of those postcards was to normalize violence against minorities and to make sure that those minorities know they could be attacked with impunity anytime. The videos we are seeing in India of Muslims being terrorized is doing the same job as those of the lynching postcards. They are videos that in India, especially in this year, have been surfacing with a regularity that is shocking. In June, a group of men thrash an elderly Muslim man and cut off his beard. In August, a Muslim rickshaw driver is assaulted as his daughter holds on to him, terrified. 
Later that same month, there's a video of self-proclaimed Hindu activists beating up a young Muslim man selling bangles. Before long, the video is up online, where it vies for attention with other variations on the same theme, all racking up views in the millions. There was another video uh, of men walking up to a man selling dosas, which is a food item in India, which is an open stall. And because the stall had a Hindu name, uh, he was also told to bring down his stall and he dare not sell his food as a Muslim. It's now become a pattern. Uh, you see a video which disturbs you night after night, you know. So, uh, we're all living through an era of hate where the politics here is defined by this kind of triumphalism of a section of Indian society when they beat minorities. You have this premeditated act, first performing the violence, recording the violence, and then broadcasting the violence. That video is then posted on social media as sort of to garner community, to garner likes, but also it's a call to violence. The extremists responsible for these attacks are part of the broader Hindutva or Hindu nationalist movement which has grown in prominence since Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party, the BJP, came to power in 2014. The activists claim to be protecting what they call the Hindu Rashtra, a Hindu nation in which Muslims, by definition, do not belong. We contacted some of the men behind the videos. We managed to speak with one. He insisted he didn't want to be interviewed on camera. The phenomenon of committing a hate crime and recording it has increased right now because there are career avenues for those who do so within the sort of vigilante, Hindu vigilante groups that are mushrooming all over the Hindi-speaking parts of India. The videos are made by the perpetrators of these crimes and they are sharing it with a lot of pride. We're witnessing in India a moment of absolute nationalism, yes? And to identify oneself or to offer oneself as a foot soldier is also to claim a leadership position. Many of these activists are also uh, members of Hindu nationalist organizations. So it's career advancement in terms of uh, being taken care of if one performs or lives through these uh, mob outfits uh, or vigilante outfits, but it is also claiming a leadership position and then having a following. The Bajrang Dal, a Hindu supremacist organization, claimed responsibility for one of those attacks. Groups like these have become increasingly emboldened in recent years, as have officials of India's leading Hindu nationalist party, the BJP. 
many have incited or condoned anti-Muslim violence. In 2018, a BJP minister publicly honoured eight men who had been convicted of lynching a Muslim man to death before having their sentences suspended. Then there's the self-styled Yogi Adityanath, Chief Minister of India's most populous state, Uttar Pradesh. In September, on the campaign trail for re-election, he said Muslims had been monopolizing government food aid. Last year, the BJP reprimanded officials for anti-Muslim statements. But its leaders have been conspicuously quiet about this year's spate of anti-Muslim violence. When they have got involved, in some cases, it's been to blame the victim, like the bangle seller, Taslim Ali. Once the video went viral, there was a lot of outrage and a very strong public push to punish the aggressors. However, the next day, the Home Minister of Madhya Pradesh came on camera. And he made some very serious allegations against Taslim Ali. He said that Taslim Ali was posing as a Hindu and he had faked his identification papers, suggesting a very sinister agenda. Police have at times been bystanders to violence and failed to take action. And at other times, police have actually turned on the person who is victimized. But reciprocally, if you look at the Kashmiri Muslim who posts a video of how they are being brutalized, state action has been taken against them. So people who are perpetrators are going free. They are being encouraged to perpetrate. People who are victims, who are coming forward seeking justice, are being further victimized. Taslim Ali's case is a prime example of that. The men who attacked him are out on bail, while he is in jail, charged with molesting the daughter of one of his aggressors, a complaint that was only lodged after his assault. His trial could be months, if not years, away. Over the past few years, Indian news outlets have been ramping up Islamophobic invective manufacturing spurious cases of jihads or holy wars being waged by India's Muslims against the nation. On the other side of the rising wave of media incitement are journalists, Muslim and non-Muslim alike, doing their best to stem the tide, investigating each attack and the complicity of those in power. Some uh, very well-meaning people tell me they are concerned for me, advise me not to cover these stories. They tell me to ignore these acts of violence because in a way they think that these stories help the BJP and the right wing spread their message and their agenda. They say uh, that these acts are fringe acts, but I don't think that we can say that anymore. This is getting mainstream. And as a journalist, it's my job to chronicle what is happening. And it's also a documentation of history for the next generation of Indians to see what their country was like in 2021.
And finally, this past Monday, November 1st, marked the 25th anniversary of Al Jazeera. It first started broadcasting through its Arabic-language news channel based in Qatar, which launched in 1996. Riding the wave of growing satellite technology at the time, the outlet quickly turned into a news source that people across the Arab world tuned into. It changed the way news was covered in the region. The network now consists of multiple channels in various formats, viewed by millions. It made its news reputation through its coverage of the invasion of Iraq in 2003, the recurring wars on Gaza, the Arab Spring uprisings of 2011, and this year, the Taliban's recapture of Kabul. We'll leave you now with a sampling of some memorable Al Jazeera coverage, and we'll see you next time here at The Listening Post. مشاهدينا الكرام اهلا بكم هذه نشره اخبار السادسه والنصف بتوقيت جرينتش من قناه الجزيره في قطر ومعكم فيصل القاسم وخديجه بن جنه وحاله من الكابه ترتسم على محيا اهلها الذين استنزفتهم عمليات القصف المتواصله واحالت حياتهم الى جحيم غير انها لم تكثر من عزيمتهم طارق ايوب الجزيره بغداد and they are also making the point um, that no amount of tear gas, no matter, they're throwing straight at me. Sorry, we're under attack. You can hear this woman screaming. She just said, you're here to save me. You're here to save me. I'm trying to get out. We've definitely found a black jail here. Just listen to the chants roaring in downtown Cairo. The hundreds of people walking to the streets. It's unprecedented. The trial of nine Al Jazeera journalists is set to begin in Cairo on Thursday. Peter Grester, Mohammed Fahmi and Baha Mohammed have been in prison for 53 days. Chaotic scenes outside Beirut port as ambulances uh, arrive to evacuate the dead and the wounded. There are also uh, requests on social media for people to donate blood because really dozens and dozens of people were injured in this massive, massive blast that shook the Lebanese capital. We're just going to bring you these uh, live and exclusive uh, pictures here. What you are looking at right now is Taliban fighters inside the presidential palace.